Hey everybody, welcome to the Data Science Deployed podcast. I'm Ben. I'm Jillian. And I'm Donnie. Uh, today we are going to chat about Pangeo. Very cool. Yeah, so Pangeo is, uh, it's, I think, like a, an earth science, climatology, uh, geology, kind of in that realm. It's a community of scientists who all got together and I think previously at least decided to use Jupiter Hub as kind of a base for deployment. And a lot of really cool projects have come out of that. And I just think the ecosystem is really interesting. And uh, I've run around stealing things from it like all the time. And that, uh, you know, and that they've also done a really good job with some of their other aspects too, like community building. They really go all the way from kind of like the low end infrastructure on Kubernetes to the, uh, to like the higher end, you know, really like manuals for scientists kind of idea. They have, um, you know, like a website, they have some forums, I think maybe a Discord forum. And they also have a lot of pre-configured Jupyter Hub instances that have, uh, you know, like DAS, DAS Gateway, and a lot of data science kind of packages and things all sort of, you know, bundled into one kind of meta package. So I guess, so I'm just wondering a lot, like, what are your guys' thoughts on, you know, having a development infrastructure set up like this? Is it, you know, is it good? Is it bad? Are you guys seeing this when you're out and about working, uh, you know, working with clients or just out there talking to people? Well, one thing I'm familiar with in terms of, of a bundle, at least for, for introduction and training, I, I do a lot of work with the uh, the Carpentries Foundation, Software Carpentry, Data Carpentry, and we'll we'll, we'll have workshops um, to teach, you know, computer skills to, to, to scientists, and uh, we'll definitely like the Anaconda distribution of of, of of Python, which is essentially something that that includes a lot of packages. Um, so you kind of already has a lot of typical packages that you that you'll need, like like NumPy and Matplotlib and things, and that's often very nice because you know, you people don't have to learn necessarily how to how to pip install or conda install right away to sort of get get bare bones with stuff that they they kind of perceive should be in their standard library, but isn't in in the Python standard library. Um, uh, however, when it when it comes to de deploying a lot, I, I often prefer you know in that case not for that specific platform to use uh, like mini conda or something to start with something bare bones, a certain Python version, and all, all my dependencies. Um, so, so it's interesting, you know, to, to sort of get people started. I think it's really nice to kind of have everything in there, but then I think when I start to develop things and want to pin dependencies and make sure to have things reproducible and see like why something isn't isn't you know compatible with this or that, I kind of want a little bit more fine fine grained control over my dependencies. Um, but definitely, when I'm starting out, it, it's nice to just kind of have like like a bunch of stuff. Um, and, and I, I feel like that's that's really nice, especially if you're, you know, a domain expert. Like a lot of these you know, these workshops are for scientists, and so it's like I don't really care about all these other things. I just want sort of a, a big, nice package. And I, I see Pangeo is sort of in the family of that sort of thing. Like here are a bunch of things you can start out with. Um, you know, it, it's sort of like like walking into a restaurant and having a menu and being able to select from it, and and just knowing that it's all good, um, as opposed to like, well, you know. I could eat anything technically, um, so I kind of like that. It sort of simplifies decision making uh, for people at the beginning of, of, of their journey, and if they just want to get a particular thing done, um, I found that to be successful, at least in that in that pedagogical context, very successful. I, I 
completely agree with you. I, I think um, I, I even categorize it very specifically into two distinct workflows. So I think I've got like a scratch workflow. If I'm trying to develop an algorithm or make a visualization or understand how a little piece of code works, I want the kitchen sink. I want Jupyter. I want Anaconda. I want everything. And I don't want to think about installing dependencies and, and pulling my environment together. On the other end, if I'm trying to build a system that's going to run in production, I actually do care about each dependency and getting it pinned and my environment and what dependencies do I have. And, um, and for that, I actually don't really like Jupyter very much. I like something more like VS code. I think in that case, really you're writing software. Um, and it's like basically an exploratory sort of like interactive development workflow versus a sort of like more traditional software development workflow, in my opinion. And I think, um, I think it's hard to know when a project should transition from one to the other in my experience, but I think it is important that those be somewhat different. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I almost, uh, it, it's not so much JupyterHub. I really like JupyterHub as a development platform, but when I have software that I want to actually deploy, it is not in notebooks. Like notebooks are just something, you know, that I'm playing around with in the very small occasion that I write any software, which doesn't even really happen very often. But when it does, you know, I do really like the notebooks. But yeah, definitely, you know, when I want proper version controlled and uh, version numbers, you know, git commits, all that kind of thing. But one thing that I've really found with this kind of, um, with this kind of idea of like creating like the life cycle of, you know, a data science environment, or in particular for me, because I've been working with a lot of biotech startups, and I've been seeing them all kind of go from sort of this ground level where usually they're developing some kind of research, some kind of analysis. Sometimes they're collecting data and sometimes they're getting data in from somebody else. So then they need this kind of environment that's like you said, just throw the kitchen sink at me, like just, you know, just give it to me and I just want to be able to analyze my data. And then there tends to be this really kind of difficult transition to, okay, we have our analyses and now we need to deploy them, which is, you know, very aptly the data science deployed podcast, right? So one thing that I found is that uh, you know, I kind of borrowed a lot of the workflow from Pangeo, and that's putting it quite nicely. You know, I just went and stole it all. So what I did was I created, uh, like, essentially this really large build matrix of different bioinformatics Docker images, and they're all built on top of uh, using JupyterHub, using RStudio, using just a ton of other kind of data science packages that you want, you know, Scikit-Learn, HDF5, XRA, Dask, Dask Gateway, all these kind of things. And what I found was that that was really helping people out because they were getting that sort of base, they were getting that base environment that they needed, and then they could use that to develop. And then when they also got to the point where they were, where they wanted to deploy their code into production, which most often for me looks like, uh, you know, having a Docker image and then running an analysis with that on AWS batch, we were actually able to just use the same Docker image that they are already building on that had their whole development stack and is, you know, pretty, pretty well pinned for versions and things like that. And then also add whatever software uh, you know, like whatever custom software they built on top of that, build that, push it to, you know, either Docker Hub or, uh, you know, the AWS ECR. And then they were very easily able to go and do that um, and use that also for their production workflows. So I'm really liking it for that kind of environment because I'm always trying to find a way to make that, you know, less painful, that transition of I'm here developing and then I'm over here and I have production code or analyses that should just run on demand. So yeah, what are your guys' thoughts on that? It's using it for part of that kind of life cycle. I think that's a great, uh, I think that's a great point. And I, I, I really like that example because I think 
um, the there's an alternative pattern I've seen. Like basically, I think what you're describing is the the sort of domain expert or the scientist is writing writing this code, and then they can put it in the Docker image that this like base image that you provide, and then you can deploy that thing. I, I think that's that's really nice because an alternative sometimes that I have seen is scientist domain expert writes a bunch of code, writes an algorithm, and then hands it over to an engineer who is responsible for packaging up. And I think um, I just have not seen that handoff over the wall work very well. Um, and and maybe the trade-off is your your base image is a little beefier than it needs to be. Um, it's it's not pristine code, but I think like there's a huge win in not making that that sort of like switch between people. Like let one person be the domain expert, be the the sort of like algorithm person, and then let them also deploy it if at all possible. So I think uh, it's a great use case for Docker images, for these like great base images, these like great scientific computing um, libraries. Another thing on that that same note, um, I'm not too familiar with it, but I, I know it's it's kind of an, an example of, of sort of accommodating the workflow of a domain expert scientist and, and trying to productionize it is um, the, the the paper mill project, where you you have um, Jupyter notebooks and you kind of add the sugar to parameterize them, so that and, and so it's like Net Netflix, for example, like has people write Jupyter notebooks and they kind of run these notebooks in production in, in ways that are that are more like programs because they have these special parameter cells at the top to run them reproducibly. But basically you don't, as, as Ben mentioned, you don't have to have someone like port the notebook to like, you know, real code or whatever. Um, because I, I think, yeah, scientists certainly appreciate the, the, the narrative flow uh, of a notebook, the, the, the literate programming that it offers, the you know, um, the exposition, and uh, and yeah, the pe people are, are following up with it. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm on this, um, I'm using this data orchestration uh, project right now called Dagster that has this module called Dagster Mill, which which will orchestrate the the, 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 the paper <laughs> the paper mill notebooks. And so there's this kind of recognition that like, you know, people just really like their notebooks, and maybe it's it's less friction to like um, kind of gussy them up and make them a bit more production ready, parameterize them and such, and, and use them directly rather than sort of the, the traditional code modules. Um, and I think that's sort of a similar approach of like, well, they have something that works. Let's see if we can wrap around it. Um, you know, like just include that in the Docker image or, or like include that in this this paper mill pipeline um, and, and work with that rather than kind of doing a, a wholesale rewrite or translation. Um, so I think that's, that's really that's interesting. Tough. I'm curious what you think. What's your opinion on that? Like. Is that a good thing? Like, should, should we encourage people to just write Jupyter notebooks and parameterize them and deploy the notebook, or uh, or is there a balance there where where you know, actually there is value in creating modules and functions and tests, and and we should encourage the scientists to do do that piece of it? I guess I'm a little bit contradicting myself because I, I think I think I just said like it's great to let the scientists write write the code and deploy that thing directly. Um, I think. For me, deploying notebooks crosses the line where it's like all of a sudden we're just encouraging bad habits. I don't know. I'm curious for your, for your take. Yeah, I mean, my take on that is uh, I think there's an opportunity for for the the, the, the support staff, so to speak, the data engineers, um, to to be able to abstract things out. I think a lot of times the do, the domain scientists they're they're 
more focused on their problem and they just kind of want to write the notebook that has their thing. And if they don't have to rewrite stuff, they'd love to import modules and do that. But um, I can I can imagine it possibly working where you have a bunch of people writing their own notebooks and maybe a lot of them are doing duplicate work and a lot of it's kind of messy. But then, you know, the, the data engineering team can then look at that and be like, oh, I think I can abstract because they have a mind for and I'm training for abstraction. I can factor out a lot of these things that are common into libraries. And so now I can encourage the domain scientists to actually import these libraries when they write their notebooks. So kind of the 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 the, the, um, the domain scientists don't have the double load of like writing and abstracting. That's interesting. So, yeah, um, that that's 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 a theory that that, that could work. Yeah, I really like that because I found that such a huge hurdle for scientists as they're getting started out is, you know, for us, it's like, oh, just write a function. But, you know, you forget how difficult it is when you're first starting out, you know, just these little things that trip you up, like, you know, you didn't put quotation marks around something or you miss a semicolon or you mess up your white space or, you know, I mean, just, you know, like all these all these little things that at some point we've kind of worked through, but the scientists really haven't. And I'm always really in two minds with whether or not like they should even have to. Because you know they're already they're already busy. They have their own you know they have their own stuff going on. They already have a lot of things that they have to know. Uh, they have you know like already kind of a lot of knowledge to keep up with. How much can we really expect for any one person to kind of cram into their head? I don't know. I suppose I have very mixed feelings about the whole uh, kind of everybody trying to make the notebooks and things happen as code. I'm just I'm not totally convinced that that's going to happen. But I think it's, you know, I guess anything that we can do to move more in that direction is great. Um, and I really I love this idea of literate code and using it really for kind of communication and presentation purposes. I think that's like that's such a valuable skill set. That's something like I always go and try to hammer at my students is, you know, like this is one of the most important things that you can do for any project that you have is to create you know, whatever you're using, the R Markdown or the Jupyter book or Sphinx or something like that, that really goes through the steps and explains not so much the code, but how you actually thought through this problem. And, you know, you can take those and you can deploy those for free on, um, you know, like GitHub pages or, uh, you know, read the docs or these other places and things like that. And I, so I also think that's really valuable for people in their own careers as well. Joanna, I'd like you to speak a little bit more about, you're a little bit more familiar with, with, with the, the Pangeo project uh, than me. Um, like, like, what are some things that, that, that you, you think are, um, I mean, sort of, we're just talking about abstraction, essentially, of, of different people's, you know, specific scientific workflows and what you can take away from that. So obviously, you're seeing something like, well, this is very nicely, you know, for, for geoscientists, but I see some great stuff for, for bioinformaticians here and, and more, more generalizable stuff. So like, what are the things that, that you sort of really liked in taking away the product, you know, from the project that you think, you know, is useful in, in your your community and other people's communities as well that they can they can take away. So I really like the level of abstraction that they implemented. You know, we're talking about the scientists and uh and trying to you know hammer them with levels of abstraction. So if you go, you can actually go look on their GitHub repo and they have one. I think it's just called Pangeo Docker Images. I'll make sure to link it. Uh, and you can see they have like a base notebook that's just really bare bones. It's just it's Jupyter Lab and Dask and the Dask Gateway extension, which allows you to start uh, like Dask clusters on Kubernetes, which is a really, really neat extension. And I go throw it at my scientists all the time because I think it's like a really good framework. And because so much of the time, really, I'm just paralyzing for loops anyway. So it's nice to be able to hand that off to the scientists as a superpower that they can have. 
you know, so I think at its base it has uh, Jupiter Lab, DASP, and then also at least a few scientific frameworks, maybe different file types. I think uh, like HDF5 and maybe S3FS and a couple of these. So the the base notebook is just really really bare bones, but I think. I think it was really important that they did that because when I went and I looked at that, I was like, oh, so I see this is really for, I think, geologists and climatologists, but I'm really seeing how I can take this and adapt this to bioinformatics as well. So I actually went and just took that base notebook that they had and, uh, you know, grabbed the configuration, grabbed the environment.yaml and even like, you know, really heavily borrowed from their Docker build files and things like that. And then I went and I talked to a bunch of scientists and I was like, hey, if I could set you up a platform for... Uh, you know, like single cell analysis, which is a kind of analysis that is like really popular right now in bioinformatics, what packages would you want? Like, and they were able to immediately just like run off this list of like, well, I want this, 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 and this. And I'm like, all right, what kind of, you know, what kind of trouble have you run into installing these things? And it's like, oh, well, this thing needs this version of R and this, you know, and so I was able to just go out and kind of canvas them. And, you know, I, I got other people to do like all my work for me for that. That was fantastic. So, I just I really like the way that it's organized for that and how they have these different notebooks that are built into different Docker containers. And each one is really suited for like for the scientists. It's really for a different analysis type. So I have a whole stack now and it has um, cell painting for high content screening, single cell analysis, like I just discussed, um, kind of the base machine learning library, but like with some of the kind of bioinformatics packages that are there. I'm going to put up a clinical genomics one pretty soon all these kind of things. And, you know, they're the kind of problems that I found myself solving over and over and over again, because I did, you know, my kind of earlier career was very much support staff, was supporting the scientists and going and installing software on the HPC. So, you know, I would have different groups coming to me, uh, you know, who were all doing the same or mostly the same types of analysis. And so I would be installing these same things over and over and over again. And just kind of, you know, over time, it's like, well, what, what can we, you know, what can we do about this? There must be a better way. Um, and so I really, I like this. This, I mean, to me, this is my better way. I have been uh, like building these Docker images for a while and throwing them out there. And then it's nice too, because I'm able to go back to clients and be like, hey, you need, you need a Docker image for, you know, for single cell or for high content screening or anything like that. And then, uh, you know, go and set them up. Um, usually on a Kubernetes cluster, sometimes on HPC, it depends kind of where they're at in terms of, uh, you know, like their startup life cycle. And they just have these pre-configured containers that are just, you know, that are just there for them. And then it's also been really important on getting a lot of the scientists getting into production with, you know, I mean, I would say most of those are containerized these days. AWS batch is like, that's a a requirement is you have to, you have to have a Docker container in there. It's like, it's part of the workflow definition. You know, so then I was able to write up just like some little like wrapper libraries uh, in particular around AWS Batch where they're able to actually go from their Jupyter notebooks. And we have like a couple pre-configured ones now. We're like, OK, here's a notebook for doing single cell analysis. Um, and here's, you know, the Docker container that it runs on and it's set up for you on Kubernetes. And here's how you start to submit it to Batch. And here's how like you pull from your S3 and all that kind of workflow. So I just, yeah, I'm just really liking it for the whole whole the whole life cycle. I have a question about that last piece. So you, so I'm a, I'm a scientist. I write my analysis in a Jupyter notebook hosted on a Kubernetes cluster. I want that to run in batch. Do I, do I actually translate that code? Do I port it to a script and build that Docker image? Or is there some other thing that's automatically doing that work for me to, to 
sort of like push my Docker image and then and then deploy that to batch? It depends, which I know is everybody's favorite. Manager, <laughs> yeah, it really it really does does depend. A lot of the, a lot of the tools in bioinformatics are these CLI programs. Uh, which is, you know, another point we can touch on pretty soon in terms of like me and the way that I think the world should be. But a lot of times you're not really writing so much code. You're stringing together different bash commands in a, in a particular order and then maybe doing some QC or generating some plots. But a lot of analysis types really are just stringing together these command line uh, applications. And then sometimes at the end, you know, you're taking something and sticking it in a database or you know, some other kind of data munging. For those, a lot of times they can just use the Docker image. So for example, with uh, cell painting, there's a tool called Cell Profiler that is really popular in the space. And most of that is exposed as the CLI. But because it's also a Python package, when the scientists do need to get like really deep into something, they are able to call those different functions from the notebook and actually be able to go and this is um, like a computer computer vision problem. So go look at the images, look at the measurements, uh, you know, see the data that comes out from there. So, yeah, it just, it depends. Sometimes they have more involved code and they'll actually write like one or more software packages. And then generally we just use the image they were already on as a base. So like in Docker, you can, uh, you can use like base images to build off of. So we'll use that image that they were on as the base and then just install the Python or the R package and then uh, throw that in, you know, GitHub Actions or on the AWS code commit side, and then they'll use batch for that. And then they'll, they'll call that Docker container rather in their batch. Following on with what, what Ben said um, about the interactiveness, I definitely see a lot of demand for that, that kind of thing where you're, you kind of are, are working in an interactive environment like a Jupyter notebook, but you're actually able to to, to set off production processes. Uh, I find myself. I think I was talking with Jillian a bit earlier about this. Um, a lot of my my personal development workflow on my laptop um, is is I'll have uh, you know a Jupyter notebook running, and that will connect to various various Docker services that I have have running, like a Docker Compose stack in the background that I'll connect through through the Jupyter notebook. So I. You, it really doesn't matter so much that that the Jupyter notebook is is on you know local host um, and that the, the Docker files are on are on you know local host. Um, I'm just sort of interactively working with with things, um, but they are containerized and they're they're kind of different services. And I, I see a lot of um, scientists interested in that sort of thing. Um, I, I I know at the uh, the National Energy Research Supercomputing Center in, in Berkeley. Uh, um, I have some colleagues who are working on that particular project about um, you know, connecting people on, on a Jupyter Hub to be able to submit things through the HPC system um, directly from from Jupyter Hub cells, rather than having to like you know SSH in and and, and you know submit submit shell scripts. Um, so I definitely see that sort of a, a hybrid model um, where you, me, me, it's almost like the the Jupyter notebook is kind of a more fancy web UI for your production yeah. system. Alternative Where, to just running a bunch of bash commands on your on your uh, terminals. Right, and you have you have more flexibility than just you know typing in text boxes and, and selecting drop downs and, and clicking buttons because you can you can write and execute arbitrary Python code on, on a on a sandbox kernel 
um, but you're still kind of, it's an interface to, to the actual system that you're running, um, which seems interesting. Yeah, I think that is an interesting hybrid, hybrid pattern. I've definitely seen that too. I think um, SageMaker has a nice Python SDK and they really encourage that type of behavior. So you, you, you know, import your SageMaker SDK and then you can launch a training job, which spins up a bunch of instances and runs a machine learning training, or you can use that to spin up a new Jupyter notebook instance or to deploy an endpoint. Um, I think, I think that is pretty interesting. The, the, I think I like that better personally than, than the just parameterized notebooks everywhere. Um, but I think you still, it's still not necessarily, or it doesn't necessarily encourage it to be reproducible. So I think, um, I, ideally that chain of commands is version controlled somewhere. Um, and I think at, at different stages, there are different requirements early on. I don't think it really matters very much. You're just sort of like trying to get a feel for it. You're, you're trying to like kind of play with your system, your algorithm, your data. Um, but I think at some point, depending on the context, like I, like I come from the world where we're, we're building production software that needs to run at scale for thousands of users. And so the, the, I'm scared of something that's not reproducible. Like I want it to be version controlled. I want it to be very predictable. Um, I, I, I definitely see that that's not a requirement in all cases, but um, yeah, I definitely like the, the hybrid approach more, I think. Well, that's another thing that I really like about this setup is that you can use, uh, you know, like these Docker images, they're all under, you know, they're all under versioning or at least, you know, the ones that I build and the ones that Pangeo builds. And I think, and I think there are a few other communities that are kind of picking up on, um, you know, like the same sort of build staff. So those are under version control. And then say, I want to take an analysis to kind of, you know, I want to take it a bit further. I can use that image as a base image and then build software on top of that and then deploy that Docker image. But say that's like one type of analysis, say that's, I don't know what this particular type of single cell analysis that I'm doing, that could be in a repo. And then all of that is versioned or at least all the code is versioned. I don't know what you do about versioning data and you can keep on building those out and then, um, you know, and I, I like that kind of very, it's very like stepwise because then once you have that, if you have the image and you have the software and you have the pipeline and you have the business logic, then I think it's much easier to go and uh, either have the scientists build out the production workflows or get a data engineer to do it and hand them something, um, you know, like you were saying, Dagster, I like Airflow over here, or, you know, I know some people are jumping on the prefect um, bandwagon lately, but I think if you have those steps already in place and you're already kind of containerized and you understand what the logic is, you know, moving to that next level, I think is much easier than, uh, than you know, having the scientists take care of the software stack completely by themselves from scratch because I've, I've had that go wrong so, so many times. I, I want to echo what you said, Ben, about uh, transitioning from exploration to like to reproducibility and um and and often i find that i don't know when i'm ready to transition and, and it's maybe already too late so it's like one thing i appreciate is, is for example when i'm when i'm in a terminal i use a bash shell and often i'm just kind of playing around and i i, I discover something that, that's nice and then i just type in history once once i figure something out and i can see like oh like how did i get here <laughs> You know, because because oh that was good, and let, let me reconstruct that, and I can see the history, the provenance of how I got to where I was, and maybe I can actually develop you know a, a, a reproducible procedure from that, from from a certain subset of those steps. Whereas, you know, I often I don't 
that that's I don't know where to go with like a Jupyter notebook if I'm like executing this cell, and this cell, and this cell, and it's like okay, this is good, but How now do I, I do that. Now yeah. I need to mentally <laughs> yeah. reconstruct from memory. I, I can't just look at a log. Um, maybe there is, but but like it's not as like intuitive to me as like history, like just sort of built in. Like, how did I get here so that I can then switch into, um, you know, productionizing mode from the exploration with with this guide um, and not just from my memory. Um, and yeah, because it, it could be mess, messy, but it, it's nice to have that kind of written written record to analyze. Um, and another thing I was thinking about when, when you talked about uh, Jillian with like, yeah, being able to, to build on Docker images, and this is a bit about what uh, Greg Wilson mentioned the other week about kind of, he felt like a lot of times Docker images can be kind of uh, um, opaque in some sense, not, not, they're not necessarily reproducible. And, um, you know, like I, I've heard of people talking about uh, like for data analysts having like these giant SQL queries that like grow over time and they kind of get inherited and like people don't really understand what they're doing, but, but, but it's kind of this SQL query will generate this report and it's like maybe pages long and something. And so I, I can imagine a situation where you kind of have these giant inherited Docker files that like, you know, like it needs all this stuff, but I don't really know what all these packages do, but like, I'm afraid to like get rid of them. And so it's still, yeah. it's reproducible, um, but it's not clear that it's, sustainable or, or that it's I, I don't know I, I don't know how to, how, to, how to get around that yeah I don't know if, if you yeah, have I think that's a great point that. like I, I and I, I think that's that's the sort of um that's the sort of trade-off of of hat of asking and in my experience I don't know I don't know if you'll all agree with this but that's the trade-off of asking scientists to go all the way to building production is like um a lot of times they're not necessarily gonna have a sense of like what's important in this Docker image. And it's, it's like, it's like, I've got this black box, this sort of like voodoo magic, this incantation that I make, and and then it just works in the production system um, as opposed to like really understanding each piece and like, what do I need in here? And what do I not need in there? I've definitely had the experience with the, the giant SQL commands. I think I agree. The same thing can happen with, with massive Docker images. Um, yeah, I don't know a good solution to that necessarily, except if, if you understand how all the pieces fit together, then you can start to strip out stuff that you don't need. Um. Yeah, I can definitely see how that would be a really big problem. I mean, I've been on multiple systems where it's like, I don't know why this works, but it works. So nobody's allowed to touch it. And we just kind of stay in that, you know, in that framework for like years, years and years. And then, uh, you know, eventually you have to retire the server or do some, you know, eventually you do have to upgrade and somebody needs to understand it, and that can cause a problem. I don't really have any great ideas for fixing it. Just, I don't know, maybe have some kind of policy where you don't inherit from more than X number of images or uh, something to have, you know, like daily builds or, you know, we were talking about writing tests and sort of the, the kind of pitfalls with that in terms of like, well, you test whatever is easiest to test, what is, not what is necessarily the most important so yeah, I think it's a really tricky problem. I don't think it's it's very well solved. And I definitely kind of hear the opinion of people who are just like, just throwing the kitchen sink in a Docker image is not like fixing the problem. There's something like fundamentally very broken here, but it's also the best that I've got for now. So, you know, that's that's just kind of where we're at. 
Do either of you have any thoughts on kind of the the, the lineage or providence change, something similar to bash history for, for interactive stuff and, and it's, it's, it's especially something that um, someone can understand in order to, in, to reproduce, ideally a domain specialist, but but just where someone's exploring and then they can like review what they've done in a, in a, in a principled way uh, to reconstruct it, any kind of technological tools that, that help with that. Your trick of just looking at your bash history is the probably the best one I've heard of. I think that's a great life hack. Um, I, I was thinking like Jupyter notebooks do have checkpoints, but it's, it's really not. It's not what you're looking for in that case. I think it's it's not really a a history of the chain of commands that that were executed. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I have a good solution to that. I, I like I, I think I know Jupyter the the Jupyter server does do some logging, but it's not really logging each command. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that's a Python package that needs to exist. So it's just like uh, a history of every command you ran in your, your Jupyter notebook. Um, I think prefect is actually doing the best job that I've seen out of that with, uh, various kind of workflow runners. And I guess Nextflow too. Nextflow does a really good job of that, but prefect kind of has this, um, sort of like idea built into it that you're not, you know, that the data scientist is not necessarily paying attention to what they're doing and they could be like, you know, like this bash history kind of thing. Oh, you know, 20, uh, 20 rounds ago, this workflow worked and I liked what it did here. So I kind of want to go back and look at that. And it seems like they at least have that sort of built into the workflow a bit. I haven't really used it and tackled it enough to know kind of how robust it is or, uh, you know, like in my case, like how idiot proof it is, like how much can I hammer on it without really breaking it and things like that. But it, it does seem like people are at least aware of that being a problem and are trying to you know, like find ways to be like, okay, how can we transparently without having to do say git commit or something like that, like without the user explicitly saying, save it here, or, you know, release a version here or something like that. It's just transparently done every single solitary time you run um, this prefect, I forget if they call it DAG or tasks or exactly how they do that. But you know, every time you run this, you get, I mean, essentially like kind of like a hash that says this is what you ran and this is when you ran it. And it like automatically versions all your workflows and things like that. I don't know. I don't have a great answer for that. I tend, I'm pretty good with like the bash history that I'll just stick it in a make file. And that's kind of, you know, and I even put on all my GitHub projects, like, you know, the make file is the place to always look. It's always like more up to date than anything else. I've been trying to get into a better habit of actually writing like tests as I go along for these kind of things. Cause there's always like all kinds of assumed knowledge that I've tested out in a notebook or just in like an IPython console or something like that. And I should be writing it as tests. And I just, I don't always do that. So I'm, I'm trying to get better. You're the only one who doesn't always do that. I know, I know it's <laughs> only me. Yeah, I, I do think, I do think a Git does solve that problem. So I, I like that's, that's where I think there's a certain stage where you need to be able to go back in time and reproduce. And like maybe ideal state is we encourage people to use Git, you know, um, idiomatically but git tracks the code it doesn't track like if you're a data scientist running like a specific workflow it doesn't track the way that that workflow ran so but yeah then I, I hear you i, I, I hear you I, in terms of like versioning software and stuff but i'm not sure that it fixes everything i i, I agree but i think there are pretty good ways to version the the chain of commands as well so i think um well dvc actually is an example of one that, that will it will encode your dag 
as a text file and then you can commit that but actually like make you can you can actually encode your your dag in make as well it's so like each command is a command and it's got a history of commands that it depends on um or i think another another pattern that i've used is you actually program the commands in python so and then those like commands are are what you version control um so you've got a you've got a train model command and you actually call train model from your your python package um it's, it's a little clunky and it, it slows you down if you're trying to explore but i think that does allow you to go back in time and see what, what exactly did it did i run to get to this state yeah i do i like that myself like i've been kind of hammering you know like when i work with people lately you know you want to have what you're doing exposed as functions so have it exposed as an api and then throw like some kind of cli you know on top of those functions as well so that you're you're able to run it from you know kind of like from both angles uh, so that, that's a hack then you can you can piggyback off of bash history because all, all your stuff is commands now because it's both right yeah exactly and you can get the nice help menus and um you can get like some nice checking too, like make sure this file exists and if it doesn't, it will automatically fail because that's something that always gets me. I'll be like in a different directory and not be paying attention and then, you know, and then the file doesn't exist and stuff like that. I guess one thing that's that's nice about uh, the bash history, but you, you brought this up, Jillian, which is, which is good too, is because the bash history doesn't cover everything because there's a lot of hidden state, you know? Uh, but what's nice about it is a lot of times um, it's very declarative. So like what you'll what you'll type on the command line is like, you know, the thing and its inputs and its outputs, it's almost, it's very functional. Um, but what it's operating on sort of changes over time. Like the underlying data files might, might have been mutated. And, and so and so it doesn't sort of solve this, this, this versioning problem where like maybe you're interested in under the hood, you know, this was run it was run on this file when this file had this this SHA-256 hash or whatever, um, and, and that's an issue. But one thing I was just thinking of was, was back to our, our, our conversation with, with, with Greg last week. Um, he mentioned the, the importance of, of logging, and he wanted people to do logging. And, and I was thinking that that might be the, an appropriate keyword here that, that, that came to mind, where you know, you're kind of like running a program, and, and, and wouldn't it be nice um, to kind of have very verbose logging where you're not necessarily inserting manual print statements or you're not necessarily inserting manual logging commands, but there's sort of a lot that's that's derived from from the things that, that you're you're running or you're able to just have a log of like, well, this function ran with these arguments and this was the output and this is the type of it. And, and, and when it opened this file, this was the SHA-256 hash of the file and blah, 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 blah. Just very, very verbose logging and be able to, being able to tune that. Um, and there's certainly work on on you know, logging for uh, you know scientific workflows. There's there's the the, the Elliot project by Itamar um, Turner Trowering. There's there's struct log, and there there are various things that help with 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 logging. And there's there's like the, the default logging library in Python. And, and what's nice about that is 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 again you can kind of leave things in there and like set the de the debug flag on or off, so you, you kind of can you don't have to you know hammer down your program. Um, performance and, and turn things off, but um, yeah, I, I think I think getting better at logging would probably go a long way towards that. Um, but also being able to make it understandable. I'm sure we've all like looked at like I, I do web development, and uh, you know, it's nice to have actual monitoring instead of having to like you know grab your Apache or Nginx logs. 
you know, because yeah, everything's there, but like, uh, you know, to, to reconstruct what actually happened. But it, but it's nice that it's there, you know. Um, but I mentioned structured logging approaches would would help a lot um, for for data scientists. Yeah. yeah, well, that's what I really like about Airflow. Like, whenever I get kind of, you know, people and they want uh, some kind of like productionized data analysis, I I pretty much one of my kind of you know, my line in the sand is I'm like, ah, no, it has to have logging and it has to persist because not, you know, not all of these ideals will persist the logging. But if you're using something that's at least backed by a database like Airflow Prefect, um, I don't know what other solutions specifically have it backed by a database, but you always have those there. And so you can go through and you can do auditing and you can do, uh, you know, you can even configure things like SLAs and you can just, you can throw a bunch of stuff in there and you can, you know, then you can start to get into these other kind of states as well, where what can go wrong will go wrong. Like if something goes wrong, alert me on Slack or raise a ticket in Jira or email somebody or something like this too, where you're um, you're starting to deal with actually sort of the state of things as they will be, which is kind of another interesting point. But yeah, logging, logging, log everything all the time. Be a digital hoarder. Okay. Uh, do you, either of you have any last thoughts? We can wrap it up. Well, I, I just I want to thank Jillian for pointing me to the Pangeo project and, and pointing us to that and having that, that be kind of the framework for for this episode. I think there's just a lot there, and it, it really highlights. Um, I think that project highlights a lot of different components to. Um, to serving and making something successful. There's there's sort of, I really like that there's kind of a guide for scientists and there's a, there's also a technical architecture and, and deployment guide. Um, I like how things things build on each other. Um, sort of, you can sort of take what you need and then build on top of that. Like like, like Joanne mentioned, you know, you're able to take like a, a base Docker image, you know, and build off of that. And, and you know, the geoscientists will do more than that. And having having their their discourse forum and things like that, um, I, I think that community aspect is really important. Um, so I just just being able to do that and 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 just uh, that it focuses on, on on a niche and and it's so big. I think that's that's one of my big that's a big takeaway for me is that there, there's a lot even in the very small or what you what you perceive as small um, and. Yeah, that's 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 what I what I took away from that. Yeah, I thought they did they did such a good job. It's really you know I've been following it for like I guess a couple of years now, and it's it's really inspiring how they went and they really went through all the stages and they really focused a lot on community building and this idea of you know nobody should be sitting in their corners building everything from scratch. Let's you know get together and solve some of these problems on you know on like multiple levels. So it's cool. I think like it seems like they're kind of heading in some new directions and doing some some neat things. So I don't know. It looks like an interesting project anyways to keep following. Very cool. Well, that's all we have this week. Uh, thanks again for all your time. Thanks again for introducing us to the Pangeo project, uh, Jillian. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>